Bow your heads with me as we pray. Mighty God, everlasting Father, we are grateful to be in this place. Father, we know that we need not to invite you into your house, but what we need is that you would prepare our hearts to meet our God. Still, every soul in this room Hold back the winds around this place. And as we learn to be still and know that you, not I, that you are God, that we would sense the Spirit of God in this place in a way that Southern has never felt it before. And that something would happen that could only have been accomplished from that power that comes from the secret place of prayer that shook the world through the Reformation. Bestow that power, Father, upon this place. Leave us changed, Lord, that not one soul would go unturned and untouched by the finger of God. This is our prayer, and we ask that you'll help this to be our experience, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember some years ago, I had boarded a plane with Delta Airlines. I had just finished spending my Christmas vacation with my mother in Chicago. And through that time, I had recently come across the truth about Daniel chapter 2. I had recently come across the idea and the notion that the Bible could actually be inspired by God. And so as I was boarding this plane, I was wrestling in my heart. And as I sat down on that row, everyone on that plane within a close vicinity could see there's something going on in that young man's heart. And I was wrestling with the concept of becoming a Christian. I was struggling with this idea of following this man that they call Jesus. But in my mind, the reason I was wrestling the reason that I found this to be such a novel idea for me was because up until this time, Christians equal hypocrites. And I would oftentimes be quoting to Christians on my campus and to other people I knew that were Christians and believers in God. I say, I may not be a Christian. I may not be a religious man, but at least I'm real. At least I'm honest. At least I'm true to what I claim to be. That's nothing. And so one of the hindrances that were in my mind was being in Atlanta. You saw the mega churches. And I had a friend who would come to me, and we were riding somewhere one time, and she said, Sebastian, you know, my pastor of this big mega church, 25,000 members, it's basically a compound. It's not a church. And she said, the pastor who owns six $300,000 vehicles is deciding to raffle off one of his cars to the church members. And I remember looking at her in disgust. And I said, why would he do that? If he just sold his car, he could buy his church members 30 $10,000 cars. They could drive themselves to church because most of them take the bus. I went to high school with his son. His son drove a Bentley two-door Granny Smith Apple Green his junior year in high school. And I look at that and I say, I thought Jesus was poor. Every time I watch Jesus of Nazareth, I don't see him driving the latest chariots in Jerusalem. Can you say amen? The Jesus that you have shown me is a Jesus that died on a cross forsaken. But now your preachers who you claim represent him drive the most expensive vehicles known to the automotive industry? Then I remember because, you know, Christians are very persistent about getting you to come to church. 
And so I remember one time I finally took up the invitation, not because I was interested in Christianity, but because she was my friend. Lay that be a lesson to you about evangelism. So I walked into her church and the floor was marble. This was the foyer. Then as I took a few more steps, I looked to my right and I saw a huge mural, probably the size of a fourth of this wall of just a pastor's head. And he was smiling with a gold tooth in his mouth. (laughs) And you wonder why I don't want to be a Christian. And I remember grappling in my heart, how can I become a Christian? Because if that's what it means to be a Christian, I'm not interested. And my suspicion is not just within the evangelical churches, but also coming to an Adventist church, we sing as if we are conducting a funeral, not a worship service. Somebody knows I'm telling the truth tonight. Why do you think young people don't like hymns? Amen. Why do you think we're bringing in these new worship styles? You go to Africa, you go to South America, you find young people no hymnal, singing with all their hearts because they know what it means when God's faithfulness is great. Because they don't have running water. And I look at the church and I say, this was my final personal hindrance to surrendering my life to Jesus. And so I thought to myself, there's no way I can become a Christian. And I kept wrestling on that flight on Delta Airlines. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 3. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. When you're there, say amen. If you're not there, say have mercy. All right. Mercy said no. (laughs) 2 Timothy, chapter 3. Verse 1, are you there? All right, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says this. This know also that in the what days? The last days perilous times shall come. Now as I read this verse, I can imagine that these are some of the last words from the great apostle Paul to his young mentee, Timothy, an up-and-coming minister in the early church. And I imagine myself that Paul was a late night writer. He was a deep thinker. And here he is sitting under his torch, perhaps in a dungeon in Rome. His inkhorn is probably running out of ink as he's concluding his letter. And he thinks to his mind, the Holy Spirit carrying along that human mind. And as Paul finished chapter two, He said, now, young Timothy, this know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. And I wondered to myself, what was going through the mind of Paul when he wrote the word perilous? You see, I grew up in inner city Chicago. And when I hear the word perilous, which means dangerous, this is where we get the word peril or perish. Perilous times shall come. And when I think about perilous, dangerous times, I'm thinking perhaps Paul is about to start describing my neighborhood in Chicago. Maybe he was thinking in his mind about when I was five years old, walking home with my babysitter who was 15. And as we were walking home, there were some female gang members calling her out her name across the street. She said, just keep walking, just keep walking. And as me and my sister, who was four years old at the time, we kept walking down the streets, and these female gang members said, well, I guess she doesn't think we're serious. So seven females decided to cross the street, and they began to beat her unconscious. And I remember looking at my babysitter, knocked out on the concrete, waiting for her to wake up so we could go home. When I think about perilous times, I'm thinking Paul must have something where in 2 Timothy 3 that covers that. 
When I think about perilous times, I think about being six years old, having joined the gangster disciples in a gang, running outside on Sunday mornings. You know, Sunday mornings are some of the best days for children. You feel like you can play all day. And my heart at the time was football. Football was probably the size of half my body. I was a small child. So I remember running outside and my best friend, his name was Jamal. He was nine years old. And my, one of my middle names is Jamal, so he used to call me Little J. So I'm running out there, cross the field to his apartment building, and I run upstairs. And when I get upstairs to his apartment, I am met by yellow tape that says, Caution. I look up at the door and I see multiple holes in the door. And I remember Jamal would say, Sebastian, just leave the gang thing alone. I'm like, what's wrong with the gangs? I get to hang with my uncle, with the big boys. You know, we're doing the cool stuff. And he said, no, you don't understand, Sebastian. They don't do positive things. I'm like, I've never seen them do anything bad. But this time, they got tired of it. And so it went this way. They decided to visit Jamal's apartment to find this nine-year-old boy who was talking against the family. That's what they call it in the game. And as they knocked on the door, Jamal's mother came. They said, we're looking for Jamal. She said, I'm not going to open the door, so you might as well just leave. And that's when they started opening fire through the door. They hit the mother at least 60 times. And as they continued firing through the door, Jamal had about 40 bullets in his body. And it was an unsolved mystery. No one knows. When I think about perilous times, I think about that. When I think about perilous times, I think about the lunch lady at my elementary school when I was nine years old. This time I'm a little deeper into the gang activity. And back then, you know, it was kind of stylish to let your pants sag a little bit. Have mercy. I hope the Lord doesn't have any pictures of that in heaven when the books are opened. <laughs> so I remember walking in the lunch line, and this lady was old school. You hit the lunch line, she's like, young man, pull your pants up. You need to look like something. I'm like, okay, this lady. But I caught on that if I came to the lunch line with my pants at the proper place, I don't know what the word is, that she would give me extra food from the lunch line. So I said, okay. So every day when it came time for lunch, pull up my pants, tuck in my shirt, you know, make sure the buttons are up. And I come in, she said, okay, you look like something today. Extra mashed potatoes. Praise God. <laughs> and she always told me she didn't know I was in the gang, but she would say, young man, don't mess with those gangs. Don't mess with those guys. They're not into anything positive. You can make something out of your life. You don't have to be like them. And so later on that afternoon, she was walking to her car. She was met by a few guns. They shot her dead right in front of her vehicle. And I remember coming home as a nine-year-old child, and I just started crying, and I didn't even know why. Perilous times. And so I can imagine that young Timothy... Perhaps living in ancient Rome knew that there was similar violence at his time. And maybe he's thinking when he reads verse 1, perilous times shall come. He's expecting murder to be in the list. He's expecting perhaps what we think today. How do we know we're living in perilous times? Because children are starving to death in Africa. Because young girls are sold as sex slaves in Asia. Maybe that's what Paul was thinking as the Holy Spirit was talking to him. But then you read on from verse 1, and the Bible says, For, that means because, men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, incontinent, that means without self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And I can imagine Timothy's eyes getting wide. Man, Paul, that is pretty bad. It makes perfect sense. Boasters, heady, high-minded, 
lovers of their own selves more than lovers of God. I can definitely see Timothy thinking to himself, reading this under his torchlight, a letter from his mentor. This know also. And he's like, man, this is pretty bad. Maybe he was thinking, we are living in perilous times when I look around ancient Rome. But then the next verse probably blew his mind. And Paul says in verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power. Perilous times is not because the crime rate goes up in College Dale. It's not when the, the single pregnancies happen on campus at SAU. That's not perilous times in the mind of Paul. Perilous times in the mind of Paul is when boastfulness finds itself in the church. Perilous times is when people become in the church lovers of their own selves more than lovers of God. He says that's perilous times. And young Timothy, when you see this, people coming in having a form, the Greek word is morphesis, that means a semblance, the very outskirts, just the form of it, the picture. Come to church on Sabbath, appear at Vespers on Friday night, a form of godliness. But what's going on at home when the church is suffering from its secret life? What happens when you don't have to come to Vespers anymore? What happens when you don't have convocation credit anymore? Will you still get on your knees and pray? Paul says, perilous times. Perilous times. And he says, why is this so perilous? It's one thing for the inner city thug. It's one thing for the young six, nine-year-old boy in Chicago who doesn't know any better getting involved in gang activity. That's one thing, Paul says. But it's another thing when the person professing to be Christian, when the person attending church, when the sister who's doing potluck is fierce, when she's heady, when the preacher wants to preach everything but the Word of God, when Sabbath school is more about your opinions than what the Bible says. Perilous times, Paul says. And when they come upon us, young Timothy, don't act surprised. Don't act surprised when you come to Southern people don't keep the Sabbath. This know also that in the last days, perilous times shall come. The title of our message tonight is More Answers. Because there was a young man on a Delta flight looking for more answers. But you know, friends, why is it that it's so perilous? Why is it that it's so perilous that the church is falling into these various attributes? That's the question. Why, Paul, is this perilous? Let me permit, permit me to illustrate this. There's a gentleman by the name of Atul Gawande. He's, he's one of the leading medical staff at Mass General Hospital in Boston. And he was called back in the late 90s because there was a polio endemic. That means it was closed within a confined area and polio was spreading across the country like wildfire. And they were calling him to go forward and to provide support to help contain the polio endemic. And so what they do, they had this system that the people would come through with the vaccines and if you had the vaccine, they would put a mark on your pinky finger. And as he was going through the village to make sure people received the vaccine, they came to a home and polio starts paralyzing the child. And he looked at a home and he saw a mother weeping in front of her tent. And he looked and he said, let me see your child. And he saw her child and the child's legs were completely paralyzed. The child was crawling, dragging his legs behind him. And he said, how come you didn't take the vaccine? Did they come by? She said, yes, they came by. But there was a rumor in the village. There was a lady that said, don't take the vaccine. It's from the Muslims. They're trying to poison all the Hindu people. 
And so because of this misrepresentation, she said when the medical people came by, she said, don't give me the vaccine. Don't touch my child. Not knowing that was the cure that they were holding. And she said, I didn't know. And she started weeping as her child was paralyzed for life. Misrepresentation can be fatal, friends. When we don't give a true picture of Christianity, when Jesus is not so sweet to people around us, when the gospel doesn't seem relevant, when the Bible is an acrimonious, a book of the past, not knowing that when people walk by you in the grocery store, when people see you at SAU campus and they're not Adventists, and they walk by like this woman thinking, oh, I thought that was the cure, misrepresentation. I want anything but Jesus. And that was that young man on that flight on Delta Airlines. I want anything but Christianity. Misrepresentation can be fatal. But I want to show you Jesus' analysis for hypocrisy. And after that, I'm going to close and we'll be done for the night. I want you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. Matthew in the 6th chapter. When you're there, say amen. Matthew chapter 6. I still hear pages turning. Anybody need mercy? Okay. Matthew chapter 6. The Bible says this. Verse 1. Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound the trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest thy alm, doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. So here, let's create a picture here. So Jesus says alms are nice, generous givings, things that we do for the poor, for the widows, for the children that are orphans. We do kind deeds or we give money to them. And Jesus says, be warned, take heed that you don't do your kind deeds so that you can be seen of men. But this is what you should do. He says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. So do your alms in secret. And your heavenly father, which sees in secret, he will reward you openly. So I want you to notice something here. He says, don't be like the hypocrites. The word hypocrite there is hypocrites. It means to be a pretender. It means to be an actor, to play to the crowd. Whatever gets applause. And affirmation. He says, don't do your alms like them. And so Jesus says, do it in secret. He says, because you know what they do? When they're about to give a man, they're walking down the street, they say, oh, look at this poor man. Hold on, pull out my trumpet. I'm about to give this man an alm. And they want to make sure everybody knows how generous they are. Or he says, they even do it in the church. You know those people? who like to get up front and say, you know, the Lord impressed my heart. I have a check here for $3,000. I want to donate this to the church. Everyone's like, wow, she's so generous. Jesus says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. That's alms. Notice the next one. Verse 5. And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet, and when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father, which is where? In secret. And thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when ye pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Now here again, do you see the pattern? Jesus says, don't pray like the hypocrites. They pray in the synagogue or in the public places in the streets so they can be seen of men. 
Don't pray like them. He says, go into your closet and pray to your father in secret. That's prayer. He adds one more. Go to verse 16. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head, and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father, which is where? In secret. And thy father which seeth in secret shall reward the open. Now, here's what we have here. He says, you have a hypocrite on the right side. You got a person who's a true Christian on the left side. And Jesus says this. He's going to pray. You're going to pray. He's going to give alms. You're going to give alms. He's going to fast. You're going to fast. The only difference is he doesn't do it in secret. He's doing it to be seen of men. So Jesus says, if you're struggling with hypocrisy... Because what we have in this church oftentimes is young people who come, say, Sebastian, the reason why I don't try to come to SCYC, the reason why I don't join the Bible Worker Club, because I don't want to be a hypocrite like some of those people in there. I know what they do at home. I've seen how she behaves when somebody crosses her. I've seen how he behaves when nobody's watching. Am I talking to somebody tonight? And we say, I don't want to be like them because if that's Christianity, having a form of godliness. So Jesus says, if you're struggling with hypocrisy, you're saying, I don't want to be a hypocrite. That's why I'm not going all the way. That's why I'm not getting up to sing song service because I don't want to be a hypocrite. And Jesus says, if you're struggling with hypocrisy, the answer is not stop praying, stop giving alms, or stop fasting. The answer is ask for a new heart. That is the answer to hypocrisy. You see, friends, as I was sitting there on that plane, on Delta Airlines, struggling in my mind, I don't want to be a hypocrite because in my mind, that's what a Christian is. And a young lady who was very bright, leading me to the Lord step by step, gave me a very precious book called Steps to Christ. And on the 32nd page of that book, as I was reading, looking for more answers. I came across the passage. She says, many people do not join Christendom because of the hypocrisy that they see. But she says, if they have such a high concept of what a Christian should be, are they not the more guilty if they don't do it? I mean, you think God is talking to you. God is talking to you. I'm reading this like there is no way. I checked the copyright of the book. And I kept reading. She says, if you have such a high conception of what a Christian should be, then go into the church and live the life. That is the answer. You don't shrink back from singing song service. You don't shrink back from praying or doing alms or getting up to preach the word of God because other people are living a duplicitous life. When we are living in perilous times, the issue that is on the table is what's going on in secret. I remember reading a book. I met a lady on a plane, young girl from West Virginia. She had completely lost her way. She was like, I don't know what to do. Our flight got canceled, flying back to Boston. And I was explaining to her, this is what you do. This is who you talk to. She said, you seem to know what you're talking about, so I'm just going to hang with you. I said, okay, sure. Divine appointment. So we went to the counter, got our arranging set up. They put us up in a hotel. We went to the hotel, and all of a sudden we started talking, and I knew. I said, Lord, I got to break open the word of God with this girl. So as we started talking, she was talking about her boyfriend. He was in the Army. So, you know, you try to connect. I was in the Marines. She's so like, oh, okay, so you understand. So as we started talking about it, she says, well, what made you leave the Marines? I was waiting for you to ask. I said, well, it's because I wanted to become a Christian. And they don't keep the Sabbath, the Bible Sabbath. And as we, as we kept talking, she, she came to Boston. She said, I want to connect with you when we get into Boston. 
So we went down, I said, I'll show you around downtown. So we met up, went to the bookstore, because she's like, I love books. I'm like, I love books too. So we stepped into Barnes & Noble. We're looking around on the shelf, and she pulled off a book called Post Secret. She said, have you seen this before? I said, no, I've never heard of it. She says, well, this book was a project that started online. And what it was was say, okay, what if we asked America, people around the world, to send their deepest, darkest secrets on a postcard? No name, completely anonymous, and we want to publish it into a book so that America and the world can know this is what the people around you are carrying around in their closet. Post secret, P.S., so now after I looked at that book and I said, my Lord, what if we made a book called Post Secret for SAU? What would be found in that book? You see, friends, there is a book called Post Secret in heaven. Post Secret. And it's not anonymous. And in this sense, Jesus says the issue of Christianity is not the public life, it's the private life. That's when perilous times come, when we deny the power of God, the power of godliness. Does Jesus save people, friends? And we've come to the place where we're not authentic anymore. And so we walk around and we say, yeah, you know, praise the Lord, happy Sabbath, good to see you all here tonight, etc., 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 when really in the heart we got craziness going on, chaos inside, sinfulness, come to church to worship God only to go home and act like the devil. And now you have this experience in your life and many of us are struggling saying, Lord, eventually we just throw in the towel. We're tired of hearing the Bible class. We're tired of hearing the preacher. This thing does not work. Let me tell you something, friends. In the very limited ministry that God has given me the privilege to engage in, there is nothing, there is nothing that has broken my heart more than going to our schools, to our academies, to our local churches and finding these people who claimed to believe in Jesus, who professed the Advent message to live a hellish life. I was at one of our academies and I will not give you the name. And after I finished preaching a message on grace, two young ladies came up and one girl came to me. She said, Brother Sebastian, I really appreciated your message. I have a question. You said that God can give grace and the power of grace. What do I do when my father is sexually abusing me at home and he's an elder in the church? I looked at her. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. The following evening, I preached a message on faith called the underestimator. Don't underestimate the power of God. And the next night, the same two girls came up, except it was the friend's turn this time. And she said, my friend wants to talk to you, Sebastian. And as we're sitting there on the side, leaning on the wall, the girl looked up and she said, go ahead, tell him. And soon as she tried to open her mouth, her face turned bright red and she collapsed on the floor, hysterically crying. And I knew why. It was so bad, she couldn't even tell me. And her friend said, she's dealing with the same issue I have. Except every day she has to go home. If you are not living an authentic Christian life, do us a favor. Don't tell people you're a Christian. I don't need the applause, just an amen. Just do us a favor. Don't call yourself Adventist. And that's okay. Jesus can still reach you. You're not lost. 
but at least be real. And in being a real Christian, it teaches the world that we have a real Savior that saves real people dealing with real problems. That is what Christianity is about. Coming to the world and saying, we have more answers than Hinduism, more answers than Buddhism, more answers than Sikhism or Baha'i. They can't help you get victory, and they don't promise it. We promise it, and people look at us and they say, really? A shelter in the time of storm? You freak out just like me? Great is God's faithfulness? You are looking at your mother dying of cancer, and you're wondering, why God? Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus says if you are holding back tonight because you have seen false Christianity, maybe you've seen it in your parents. I've heard that many times. And young people come and they say, Sebastian, I would be a Christian, but I've seen how my father lives. I've seen how my mother lives. I've seen how my dad, who is a pastor, I know what goes on at home. He preaches that stuff up front, but it's a different story when we get home because he's hitting my mom. What do I say to that? Do you know what Paul meant now when he said perilous times? What was the Holy Spirit bringing to the mind of the apostle? And Jesus says, if you are struggling not to be a full Christian, not to go all the way for Jesus because you've seen false Christianity, you've seen misrepresentation, you've seen duplicity in your home, in your school, in your life, in your academy. I don't know where you've seen it or whatever's holding you back to say, this thing isn't worth going all the way. This thing isn't worth giving more. It's not worth it. And I'm not going to put all my eggs in one basket. I'm not going to put all my life in this if it's just a sham. If it's not real. But I'm standing here before you to let you know God is still saving people. He's still bringing them out of it. Doesn't matter what hood you grew up in. Doesn't matter what gang you used to be a part of. Doesn't matter what sexual abuse you went through. Doesn't matter what violence you suffered. Jesus is still saving to the uttermost. And that's the strongest amen we can give. Because we have no experience. Jesus can save you. And people say it and say it and we've heard it, friends. But tonight it's not the same. It's not the same. Because I know many of you are looking for more answers. And here's my concluding illustration. One of my favorite speakers and teachers is not an Adventist. His name is Ravi Zacharias. And I remember when I first came across Ravi's ministry, I heard about it from a friend. I said, I'll check this out. So I went and they said that he was having a Q&A session, three-hour-long Q&A session. And I remember like, okay, let me see what this guy's got. So he was standing up there, and he was at one of our Ivy League schools in America. And the audience was littered with atheists, the brightest minds in the nation. And as he got up there, they started drilling him with questions. How do you know God exists? How do you know the Bible is true? How do we know that the resurrection really happened? Where is Jesus right now? You say this about God, you say that about God. They were asking him to define God. And as I'm listening and I'm watching him fighting these people, one man versus an audience, putting all his heart in answering these questions, trying to make it intellectually credible, existentially relevant. And I remember towards the end, two hours and 45 minutes answering questions. And it seemed as if there was a brief silence, like there is right now. And I remember he seemed to be standing there as a Christian soldier, tired and wounded in intellectual battle. And it seemed as if there were no more questions to be asked. 
And then a young Asian young lady raised her hand in the back. She said, excuse me, Dr. Zacharias, I have one more question. And he said, yes, what is your question? She said, if what you're telling us is true, where are the Christians that live this way? He closed his Bible. He stepped from the podium and he says, I've been wondering the same thing. Because the greatest argument against Christianity are Christians themselves. Every head is bowed and every eye is closed. The greatest argument against Christianity are Christians themselves. And what I'm simply asking you tonight is I'm wondering, are there more answers here than objections? Is there a person tonight, a young heart that says, Sebastian, I'm with you. I'm with Jesus. I want to be an answer, not an objection to Christianity. And so you're saying, by the grace of God, I want to live an authentic, true, Christian, victorious life. I want to be an answer. And I'm telling you tonight, friends, what the world needs is more answers, not objections. It's time for us as a church to stop being an objection. It's time for us to start being an answer. More answers is what the world needs. That's why I came into this church, to be an answer, to be a strong argument for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that is your wish, if that is your prayer, I want you to stand to your feet with me. I want to be an answer. Now, if you notice, there's a decision card under your seat. I want you to pick that up right now. I want you to pick that decision card up right now. And tonight, it is important that we don't just go through the motions of standing only to go back more of the same. This is the time to start making radically different decisions than what we've ever made before. As I've been on this campus the past week, I've been encouraged. You know, people beat up on Adventist universities. There's no more radical people there. There's no more committed people there. But as I've had the opportunity to rub shoulders with many of you, my heart is encouraged because I sat down with some of you at the campus kitchen. I sat down with some of you in your own cafeteria and I listen to you talk from your heart of your sincerity to be used by Jesus. And so therefore I'm encouraged. But we can't go back to business as usual. It can be more of the same. How many more SEYCs? How many more weeks of prayer? How many more revivals? It's time for some young person here to start preaching the revivals. It's time for young preachers to arise at SAU to preach at SEYC. It's time for you to be an answer for God so that when you leave this university, we are not sending objections into the world, but we are sending answers. People who will be strong arguments. So on this card, you notice you have a card, you have a pencil. I want you to fill out that card. And there's some of you that may need special prayer, check special prayer. But specifically, I want to make three specific calls tonight. And these individuals, I want you to fill out your card and then come up front so I can pray with you. Number one, you're a person who knows you have slidden back in your relationship with Jesus. And you want to rededicate your life to God. I want you to check that on your card. I want to rededicate my life to Jesus. Because as we talked about last night, we serve a God of second chances. Amen? We serve a God who says, Lord, spare it this year also. 
I'll give you one more. We serve a God of second chances. So you're saying, I want to rededicate my life to Christ. I also want to make a call for those who want to study for baptism. If you're saying, Lord, I've never given my life to Jesus through the ceremony of baptism, and I want it through a public confession of my love and desire to serve him the rest of my life, I'm ready to cross the line and to make that death commitment to Jesus. I want you to check that on your card. I want you to come forward so we can pray with you. Welcome you home into the family of God. Check that card and come forward. Or maybe there's a person here who's gone very far. So far that they say, I've, I've come to the place, I've been a, a closet atheist, a closet agnostic. And you're like, I've been denouncing Jesus. I've been living an indulgent, profligate life. And I want to rededicate my Lord, my life to the Lord through rebaptism. Fill that out on the card. I want you to come forward so we can pray for you. If you want a personal visit, we have plenty of individuals already set aside. Already set aside. Personal Bible studies. Or maybe you need counseling. You're going through some very deep issues like I mentioned. Abuse. Maybe there was something in your childhood. Something someone has done to you on campus and you need to talk to someone. I want you to check that on the card. So go ahead, take time to fill that out right now. And those of you check baptism, rebaptism, or rededication, I want you to come up so we can pray with you. I don't care how far back there is time to welcome God's children home. You check baptism, rebaptism, or rededication. Come forward with your card. So as you're filling out your cards, I want you to pass them to the center, to the end of the row, and the ushers will come to pick up your cards. I am so encouraged. I am so encouraged. People rededicating their lives to Jesus. People coming for rebaptism or for baptism the first time. I want you to come with your card. No need to be afraid. Because he says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the angels and my Father in heaven. Please, come all the way forward. Make room for those who are coming. Fill out your cards and come. For those of you who filled out counseling or something else, just fill out your card, put your information, and pass it to the center of the row so the ushers can pick it up. We want to make sure that each one of you, there is someone to follow up to make sure that this is not a mountaintop experience. But immediately, what God has been giving to you, you'll have an expression. You'll have an expression where you can channel that love and that dedication you want to bring back to Christ. Just keep coming. I see you coming. You're filling out your cards. Just come. And for those of us who are not coming, please bow your heads and pray for those souls that need to come. Those souls that need to fill out those cards, come. Are there others? Are there others? Say, Lord, I'm ready to live a real Christian life. Fill out the card, come. We want to pray with you. If I can just ask the SEYC leaders just to come up so we can make sure that we're here to receive these people right after the meeting. You want to pray with them? Just move over to here to the right when we're done praying. I see young people still coming. The spirit is still moving. Please keep praying. Please keep praying. Nothing more beautiful. The Bible says that all of heaven rejoices over one. All of heaven rejoices over one. You want to rededicate your life to the Lord. You want to be rebaptized, or you want to be baptized the first time. Come with your cards. Lord, I'm ready to live a real Christian life. Is there more? I want to make sure that no one does not come because they think 
that we're going to close this service. So I want to make sure the arms of the church are open. Please come. Please come. We need more answers. More answers. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Most gracious Father, my heart is overjoyed because I do not come before you alone. But I've come, Father, with some of your children that are ready to come home. Some have come to rededicate their lives to you. Some have come because they want to go through that public confession of faith through baptism or rebaptism. And Father, you see how many are standing to say they want to be answers, Lord, and not objections. It is our prayer tonight that somehow, Lord, you would reach into the soul of everyone that is standing, heads bowed, hearts opened. You would reach into every soul and you would plant that seed that shall bear fruit unto godliness. May every heart in this room know what it's like to experience the power of the grace of God. May every soul in this room go forward as an answer for your son, that the world may know that you sent your only begotten, and that the gospel is real, and that Christianity is true. We thank you, Father, for visiting us in this place as we prayed. And we ask, Lord, that as we go home from this, from this place, may we not return to do more of the same. May we go back with new eyes reading your word. May we go back with new hearts and new lips lifting up prayers to you. May we go back with more earnest feet to spread the message for this time. Thank you, Father for doing for us that which we could not do for ourselves. And now we commit ourselves unto him that is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his glory with exceeding joy. This is our prayer, and we ask that you'll help this to be our experience. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.